welcome back to Dirty Pinko Kami, a podcast on politics, poetry, and witchy shit featuring the dirtiest of the dirtbag left. I'm your host, Samantha Gevgeon Clark. Today's guest is not actually dirty. She's very lovely. Summer, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I am Summer Farah. I am a poet, and I am Palestinian, so we're going to talk about being Middle Eastern. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about, that's a big over... I don't know, all the ways in which, um, like, identity is kind of denied to you, and, mm-hmm. like, religion being one thing, especially when, like, honestly, like, being Christian in the U.S. is basically not being a religion at all. It's, mm-hmm. like, it's very unmarked, so it's, like weird yeah but yeah you know palestinian christians they're real <laughs> yeah them into, your, <laughs> them into your frameworks totally totally and like i get the same thing kind of um as an armenian because right. a lot of people know armenians but they're like from armenia or they're mm-hmm. just like you know sixth generation from glendale right. they'll be like oh <laughs> armenians are white people they're just like normal americans or whatever or like write it off and i'm like yeah. i grew up in this like really white town in oregon and, like, I look dark. My family's from Aleppo, Syria, you yeah. know? Like, it's not, like, we're, like, we're Arab Armenians. <laughs> yeah. And like, people Armenian don't understand. It's so interesting. I think that just the weird discomfort people have with, like, labels and cate- categorization, I think, especially comes in with Armenian identity. Because it's, like, yeah, Armenia, Ar- what's now Armenia is, like, Eastern Europe, but it's, like, that's... It's a country of diaspora. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Really and it's, like, not its history either. Like, it's yeah. changed so much since uh, being part of the USSR and having this major Russian influence. Yeah. It used to be so much more linked into the Middle East, and you can see that in the cu- cuisine of the diaspora. Yeah, like, I was watching the Anthony Bourdain episode <laughs> of, um, in Armenia, and they, uh, you know, he's at a dinner table, and they had metabel, and they have hummus, and, like, mm-hmm. they were like, yeah, this is in every Armenian dinner. It's not necessarily our cuisine, but it's just as much part of, like, how we eat as anything you call Armenian. And I thought, I was just like, yeah, hell yeah, that's, like, what a beautiful moment of just, like, recognition of, like, migration and boundaries and diaspora, and, like, how that changes how you like exist as a people I, I was like yeah and like I I think uh in my <laughs> when I was in high school uh, my French teacher was Armenian and she was like she was like one of my favorite teachers I've ever had and I realized looking back just like on the level of closeness I had with her a lot of it was because she was Armenian and she understood like Middle Eastern culture and like she was very similar to like how my mom is kind of things and just like how you interact with people and how you raise people and the ways in which you show like um like appreciation I think or like affection towards students was very similar to like how I saw it in my home of this kind of like stern like Mm -hmm. you gotta be the best I know you can be better than that kind of thing and I like looking back on it I was like oh yeah that makes sense (laughs) that's so funny because like it's, it's it's interesting to me to hear you say that as someone like you, I mean, you were you were raised with your family, right? Yeah. Like, I I was raised by my mom and my stepdad, who are both white, mm-hmm. okay. and I didn't me- actually meet my Armenian side of the family until I was like nineteen years old. Oh wow! So I don't speak the language. Right. Um, like I I picked a lot up since then. I mean, it's been almost ten years. But mm-hmm. when I was uh, when I was a kid, I knew I was Armenian, and I like very much looked different from my family. 
Right. Um, I look like I look so much like my dad. <laughs> but uh <laughs> but like I didn't have a lot of things to compare to. Mm-hmm. And yet I still found myself like I remember I had a Greek professor my first year at college mm-hmm. and everything he was talking about, like from his culture, everything like about his accent, something about even just like his the way his eyes looked, mm-hmm. I found so comforting. And yeah. I didn't know why until I talked to him about it and he was like, Well, you said you're Armenian, right? Like <laughs> isn't there probably some cultural overlap? And I was like, I don't even know. (laughs) And so it was like this weird, the way that like, which is actually something I want to touch on with you about the poetry too, is like, Mm -hmm. there's something about, I mean, I think that the intergenerational trauma and tendencies and stuff kind of come Mm -hmm. through even, even without having the cultural impact, but then there's also the cultural impact on top of it. And I just, I want to talk to you about the way that you think that that like impacts the way that your poetry comes out and if you think it, there's something kind of inherently political about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, that weird kind of, like, draw to people who share something, I think, like, that kind of, like, Mediterranean culture, that kind of, like, Middle Eastern kind of, like, we used to be part of the Ottoman Empire kind of vibes of <laughs> those areas. Um, I'm actually, like, kind of looking at that in the thesis I'm working on at school, Um I'm writing on specifically Palestinian American women. Um, and my kind of like thread is like my like <laughs> research question, whatever, is um, how do you write about, or like how do you write about a place that you are cut off from that mm-hmm. is also being actively erased? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that I was thinking about when for my birthday, like, a year and a half ago or whatever, um, my roommate, um, who's also a poet, Eugene Chen, they're great, um, got me a book of uh, Naomi Shihabnese poetry. And, you know, like, just like, they were like, yeah, you know, here's a Palestinian poet for you to read. And I was like, dope. And I was going through it, and she has this poem called um, Different Ways to Pray. And um, there's a moment that describes, um, there's like a stanza that's about, um, like, dipping bread into olive oil. And the way that she, like, the way that, like, just the, the lines read, I felt such a strange sense of, like, over-familiarity. And I looked at one of my poems that I had written maybe, like, a month or two before that, and there was just almost, like, the exact same scene in my work with the same, like, energy. And I was just like, whoa, like, that's really interesting because it's, like, I don't necessarily have, like, a literary ancestry of like Arab writers um like I think uh like Khalil Gibran is probably the biggest Arab writer that was in my house my parents had a copy of the prophet and they said that that was like how they um like they like modeled raising me and my brother um and when I read that I was like holy shit yeah this is definitely a parenting philosophy um but just like reading the poem and thinking like oh there's like something inherent to like who we are that comes about in our writing, even if we haven't necessarily talked to each other about it. And then when I started meeting more and more Palestinians at school, um, we talked about this and like, um, we would just like talk about like different, like the more like Palestinian writers we read and the more Palestinian, other Palestinians we talked to, we realized that there was so much of this like similar, just like energy in moments of like, high points or like not necessarily high points but like very notable 
moments that we remember that are very like inherent to how we experience the world so like the idea of like olive oil as holy is such a thing that it was necessarily never necessarily like drilled into my brain it was very much like don't don't waste olive oil it's bad luck to waste it but it was just kind of like something that was always there always omnipresent and it became part of a ritual the idea of how you put the bread into the dips into the olive oil with the zazar it's very like ritualistic and i felt it very like i don't know it was just very like important and then what i like grew up and learned about like how much olive trees that israel destroyed and how tied it is to like the land and the culture and just like the importance of it spiritually i was like oh okay this makes sense but it's like these aren't things i ever learned they were just kind of like part of me and part of how i moved through the world but then just like meeting others and reading people i was like oh this is like there's something there and i still don't really understand it but i've met other people in like other mediterranean cultures other like levantine um arab states just like how they're just cultural things and like cultural similar cultural similarities like i know it just seems like kind of pretty like duh of course if you're raised similarly you have similar things but it's like i feel like i have no access to or not no but very very little access to the other ways that like i don't know just like other arabs or other like middle eastern people until like very recently with the internet and just like being part of like poetry communities that i didn't realize that these are things that are like echoed and layered and that continued and that they are continuously like kind of they're unique but not unique to your family they're like a characteristic of a region yeah yeah no that's so interesting the way that you talk about that because one of the reasons i wanted to talk to you about this um that i was like okay like i i, I was subscribed to your uh newsletter with where i got your oh, poems right, yeah. and and i like they would come into my email and i was just like damn she's good every time but then i got this one where it was uh it was about food and mm-hmm. this sort of like balance I mean, it's about food and language. It's about a lot of things. But there was one <laughs> where there's a this bit where you're talking about food being love, but then being concerned about it being too much, like also being self-conscious about your body. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I was like, oh, my God, I wrote this same poem in a completely different way because I wrote one about like the contrast between like what it is like to be in America where this sort of impoverished looking thinness is fashionable and people mm-hmm. wear it like like it's a like it's a fashion statement but so like women women kind of just sort of have this knowing of what it is like to starve right Right. but at the same time I have this like call from my past that I feel sort of in my bones that I like owe it to my ancestors to eat yeah that's beautiful yeah absolutely yeah and then there's this like it's like it's this almost like rescue from my ancestors but it's also this feeling like you have to like consume but without becoming and you have to fill yourself for the past and empty yourself to survive and I just I saw some of that come through yours was way more loving of yourself than my poem was (laughs) but I saw it it come through in what you were writing and I was like maybe we're a bunch of people who are really self-conscious about food for a reason that's the so like food is like (laughs) you know like it's just like everything I write has to do with food and I think about a lot just like I was just home for like five weeks um and just the way that like food 
because it's just like you know my family we don't do we don't go to like we don't go like i don't know some families go like golfing together or i don't know i just picked a thing or like they go hiking or biking or whatever i don't know outdoorsy people we don't camp like you know all those kinds of things what we do together is like we make meals or we go to a new restaurant or something and just the way in which food is bonding in so many ways is very interesting but it's also like food is just a function of survival so it's really weird when it's like I'm home and I have this recognition that practically every single meal we have is this lavish, intricate spread, but it's also just like, this is what's necessary to exist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And just thinking about that versus like when I'm at college and I'm feeding myself, like I just had some potatoes for breakfast, like (laughs) nothing else, potatoes and coffee. But at home, it's like, if there's potatoes, there's also hummus, there's also lebanese, there's also toast, there's also eggs, there's also, there's also, like, pickles, like, there's everything. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this weird thing of just survival and food as a function of that, but also, like, food as a function of portraying or illustrating the culture, too, I think, definitely. Yeah, it's like a, it's a very deep, like, connection back my family is the same way. When I when I first met them, I will never forget this. Like, both of my um, my horkurs, like one of them, my aunts, one of them put she I she was like, "Do you want seconds?" And I said, "I can't possibly. I've eaten so much food." And she went, "Okay," and then ladled stuff onto my plate. Oh, and yeah. The, and then the other one, she cried when I refused a third piece of baklava. Oh. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's that insistence of, like, eat, eat, enjoy, like, consume this labor, I think, is really interesting. Um, but also, yeah, definitely coupled with the idea of, like, self-image and, like, how you perceive yourself and how you take care of yourself is also just, like, I've had a lot of problems with food and eating this, like, disordered eating and stuff, and it is never helped in an environment where it's just like, yeah, I want to eat what my mom spent so much. She made cheese. Like, she made cheese. It was amazing. But it was also just like, I shouldn't eat five pieces of cheese. Yeah, yeah. The bout, like, it's very hard. You wrote it, like, when food is love, right? Which is, it is, it is this difficult contrast when you're being faced with all of this. I gain weight every time I visit my family. Oh, absolutely. Because I'm also, like, not doing anything. I just sit on the couch. Exactly. Like, more cake. <laughs> really? And it feels like, oh, I'm just letting myself be, like, lavished upon. Mm-hmm. And to them, it's really important, I think, particularly with me, because they feel like they, like, they, they almost lost me. You right. know, another like if we we Making if we can it. make up for lost time and make sure you love all this food and make sure we fatten you up. And they're always telling me I'm too skinny, which is a lie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, that's really interesting. And it's it's definitely true that it comes out. I think that's the thing I've seen the most consistently across mm-hmm. like not just the Middle East in general, but also like every culture in diaspora. Yeah. I also noticed one of my favorite books ever is Fugitive Pieces by Anne Michaels. Um, and it's about uh, two different situations of uh, Holocaust victims or, the, like, their children. And in the the, the second group is a, a man whose parents were Holocaust survivors. And he describes when he was a kid watching the way his dad struggled with food. Mm-hmm. And there's this line where he says, 
knowing what he knew, should he stuff himself or starve? Wow. Yeah. Oh, it it killed me. Shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just think like there's there's something consistent about that that's so raw and so human that it like it has to come out biologically in us in this way. This you know like people talk about intergenerational trauma, and I think like there's nowhere where it's more like obvious than food. Yeah, absolutely. And I think yeah, just like how do you like I've been lucky that like I've always grown up knowing I was gonna have dinner or breakfast or lunch but the idea that like when you move from being like food insecure to not just like how do you enjoy that food like what does it mean to like enjoy a meal after you've not had the pleasure of enjoying a meal I think is also a really interesting thing that I've read a lot in poetry of um, like diaspora communities and just like that shift of generations um, is also really interesting and then coupled with all of the body image things again like I just think back again I think a lot of like just my experience with my family is there's a lot of um, emphasis on like image but also image is tied to health so it's like very much like um I don't know being overweight is a sign of being unhealthy which isn't necessarily true but a lot of times it's just like the concern for your image comes out of the concern for your health which can be really difficult to you know deal with because it's like no sometimes I'm healthy I just have a tummy Mm -hmm. um but I think that it's just like a very interesting like generational fear of just like the excess either way like too skinny or um overweight it just causes like there is something wrong I think it's really interesting yeah they get like almost like more tender about the the exact like being exactly the right weight Mm -hmm. in a way that is actually less image oriented in this like Mm -hmm. way that we understand as Americans usually yeah but it's still it could like especially growing up in an American culture it can actually end up being so much more harmful absolutely like I've really had I think that trouble of just like sometimes like I don't know my parents will tell me stop eating sugar or something and I'll be like guys like please let me eat what I want Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they're just like no like we have diabetes in our family this isn't like this isn't because we don't like how you look it's because we're afraid for your health and we want you to be okay and it's just like hearing that kind of stuff it's very difficult to wrestle with because just American media is so much very much like if you you know like if you're not like thin and perfect you know you're ugly Mm -hmm. um and just those kinds of reinforcements that aren't necessarily echoing American media but can be kind of transmuted into that from your family is really difficult and weird to wrestle with um but yeah but it's always just food is always just such an interesting indicator of cultural and like generational things yeah (laughs) no definitely I actually think this is a good point to uh to take a break because we're going to do the poetry segment which for my listeners this is the first episode on which I'm going to do a formal poetry segment last week I I read one of my own uh, in the episode, but what I want to do normally is uh, do it in a separate segment. So we're going to take a break and do that. Summer's going to read one of hers. Um, We'll be back in just a minute. 
All right, welcome to our first poetry segment. Uh, we're going to have Summer read one of her poems. Summer? So this is titled, It Will Be Pink, and it's made from quotes um, from an interview with Jenna Jihad, who is Palestine's youngest journalist. Audience filled with soldiers, speak from gut. Watch them catch your tongue in their teeth. Feel the catastrophe commence as they become big. You sizzle and shrink while journalists in the crowd take in your smoke. Shout, 150 dead, 50 Palestinian homes for the taking. Skip a meal in service of their hunger. Look lean before the cameras. The smaller the Palestinian, the less they have to feast upon. So do keep skipping meals. Do not let Arabic season your gums. Do not talk about your mother's dinners or about Palestine. Your country gutted and your stomach eats itself, cries, I am losing our language. I want to taste olives without ash, want to smell argili in all the rings we make. Return to recipes, no more reports of death making us hollow, sitting on our plates, the fate of Palestine. The soldier screams, I need more heat, don't want your blood to remain, call it erasure, starvation, survival to let charred ends of your skin probe the inside of their throats. Cook your tongue through until it is no longer pink. Um, and you can read that on LitHub, which is part of the folio of Poets Respond to the Anniversary of Nakba. Wow, thank you so much for sharing. <laughs> okay, we're back. Uh, Summer, why do you think uh, that poetry is not so popular with the youths? And do you think <laughs> that <laughs> that we can, like, well, first of all, do you think it's important to? And second of all, do you think that we can foster it, like, amongst the newer generations and, like, make a better place for it amongst ordinary people? Yeah, so <laughs> I think poetry is very important. Um, <laughs> um, I think something that's really interesting is looking at like the popularity of like Rupi Carr and mm -hmm. stuff especially with her popularity with teen girls um in the way that her poetry is very digestible um and visually appealing and all of the things that like I think teen girls are told that they're supposed to be um and I think a lot of poetry is advertise as not easily digestible even though that's not necessarily true and not to take away from anything but like a poem doesn't have to be understood right away in order to be liked mm -hmm. and a poem doesn't have to be complex in order to be good mm -hmm. and so I think that there's just a lot of narratives narrative shifts that are really needed in order for poetry to be I think the mainstream like alive I mean the poetry is like alive and well it's like doing great um everything that's happening right now is amazing but I think just the idea of going into like a middle school and looking at what everyone is reading for their independent reading assignments poetry should be those things that they're doing because like I started I mean, like, I loved poetry when I was, like, a small child in elementary school when they were just giving us, like, Emily Dickinson and Langston Hughes poems, but they never gave us enough time with them, and they never gave us enough time in my high school classes either, and I just think that poetry deserves time, and I think that there's so much weird urgency in 
reading that like if you don't finish a book in an amount of time then it's not worth being finished and I think poetry books like reading a poetry book is never really a finished task in the way that I feel um personally that I feel like when I finish a novel like I used to be a big big re 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 reader of novels like when I was um like 11 I reread the Twilight series like 47 times (laughs) And the fact that I don't remember what happened now is actually kind of troubling for me. <laughs> I was, like, reflecting the other day because I just saw, like a, like, a Rami Malek compilation on YouTube of his scenes in Breaking Dawn. And I was like, when did these things happen? I don't remember. <laughs> uh, it was really stressful. <laughs> um, but I, I I see myself now rereading poetry collections the way I used to reread novels and, like, letting all of those words just kind of sit with me and, like, making myself like remember it in the ways that I used to remember Harry Potter or Twilight and stuff like that um and I think it's just time like I think that reading needs a shift of narrative that it's like you're allowed to have take as much time as you want with everything and I think school like kind of destroys that like Mm -hmm. there's competitive reading set up everywhere like I was one of them when I was like nine I read like 250 books in the school year and I wasn't the first like the first place winner for the reading prize so like it was ridiculous and like now like I'm in college and they expect me to read like 37 things a week which is stressful and I never have enough time with anything but I think that just you know you need time and poetry is amazing because it can articulate things you didn't really know you needed articulated Mm -hmm. like um I saw um, Jess Rizala. She's a Lebanese-American poet, um, does a lot of spoken word stuff, and she has a book. It's good. I love her. <laughs> um, I saw um, one of her YouTube videos, like, I don't know, three years ago, and the title of the poem was I Am But I'm Not, I think something like that. Um, and it was this articulation of feeling very outside the consideration of Arabness because of... Um, like being like light skinned or being like Americanized or having like, um, yeah, just those kinds of like outsiderness of the norm in perception. And it was something that I didn't know I needed articulated and she did it so beautifully. And it was just so nice to like have YouTube have a video of just this person who I probably never would have been able to connect with otherwise because she lives on the East coast and I'm here. Um, And I was like, oh, cool, I see myself. And then poetry continued to allow me to see myself. And eventually I did start finding novels and like nonfiction pieces where I could see myself too. But I think poetry was the first place that I found that. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a lot of different emotions that people feel, not necessarily tied to identity, um, that are very well articulated by poetry. That's why I love poetry is so popular because I think like love is such a difficult thing to articulate in a way that feels earnest Mm -hmm. and poetry lets you do that. And I think that kind of complicated feeling is articulated. Yeah. That kind of complicated thing is articulated well in poetry, regardless of what that complicated thing is. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. Yeah. I, um, I, I feel the same way. I think that like poetry can not only explain better what like, uh, like where you can see yourself in it, it can also like one of the things I've discovered recently because I'm dating philosophers, <laughs> which I didn't mean to do. I used to think the trick was to date other poets, and it's not like other poets <laughs> are terrible, but um, especially men. 
<laughs> but like apparently people who study you know obscure 18th century philosophers are just great for poets Excellent. <laughs> and because like i didn't realize what i was doing was essentially philosophy and like yeah. you can find but you can find ways of like pinpointing very specific things that philosophy is like incapable of getting at mm -hmm. with poetry that are still important philosophical ideas and that plays into my political work too mm -hmm. because there's a lot of you know theorizing and philosophizing has to go into political work and it can easily miss something like the human experience in this way where you can like poetry has more space to uh, mix stuff up absolutely and I think that's like why poetry is the greatest cross genre of our time mm -hmm. It really like, is. Uh, people like Etel Adnan, like people, um, like her new book, like Surge, came out, and like the like blurb on it is like the philosopher poet Etel Adnan, and it's like, aren't we all philosopher poets? Yeah, it's kind <laughs> like, of like Maggie Nelson and like auto theory and stuff, and it's like all poetry is auto theory. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that people are starting to like identify it that way and mm -hmm. identify themselves that way I think that's good yeah. but I think it's also important not to miss that like I mean I like I think the thing that first did it for me that made it click for me was realizing that rap is philosophy yeah hell yeah <laughs> you know and then I was like well that means poetry is yeah. <laughs> it took me a second but like it's it's like this um it's like the the ordinary person's philosophy you know it's like mm -hmm. this way of just humans sort of naturally philosophizing coming through and then what we can what we think of as philosophy is more like a scientific approach to that yeah. process but it's it they're not different things and they actually can complement each other and i think like poetry is important to i think poetry should be important to like activists i think so too yeah <laughs> and not just as like slogans you know for like you know yeah yeah not just like instrumentalizing poetry when you need a, a deep quote or something. I think, like, looking at the work done by poets, I think, is really important. I agree. Oh, yeah. my God, though, have you ever read any socialist poetry? Uh, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> it's so bad. Like, stuff that came out of the USSR and stuff? Oh, uh, okay. No. Oh, God, it's bad. There is such a thing as very, very good, uh, like, poetry, particularly by, like, people who are marginalized mm -hmm. generally. Um depending on, you know, wh where they're from, different kinds of people. But, like, yeah. but it's, I mean, it's often just, like, th there can be, I guess what I'm trying to say is there, there can be really good poetry that's, like, anti-authoritarian or anti-capitalist mm -hmm. or, like, even, like, imagines what a world could look like in a, mm -hmm. in a more friendly, loving way or whatever. But there is yeah. there is so much really bad, like, propaganda poetry. <laughs> and I just I don't understand why we can't have both. <laughs> what happens... I think that's really interesting. This is something that um, in I've learned with my familiarity with children's publishing, that when you lead with a lesson, <laughs> your work's going to be trash. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like children's books that are like, the, you can tell the author sat down and was like, I'm going to teach children about traffic or something. It's not great books. Or like, I'm going to write about diversity. It's like, that's not that's not a story. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and I think that the same could be said with poetry. I think that like when I've looked at um, poems that I've written where I was like, I'm going to write about this thing. It's, it's never as good. And like, it might be digestible in some ways. And like, maybe they've done like, okay in crowds and stuff. But when I look at it and I look at the merit of the work, I'm like, ah, <laughs> 
this isn't like good like the practices I like the narrative that I'm trying to express here isn't serving itself it's serving something else and yeah and so just like I think leading with ideology is weird in Mm -hmm. writing I think letting aspects of your beliefs come out in your writing when you're telling a story I think that's just you know that's what makes a good story Yeah, I agree with that. I think most people kind of like feel that intuitively, but don't always Mm -hmm. know how to translate it into the way that they actually approach the work. I tend to lead with a question usually in Mm -hmm. my poems. In fact, a lot of the time I'll end up like writing a question down at the beginning, like as if I'm starting the poem, and then I'll end up either moving it, either deleting it entirely or like moving it into the middle somewhere. Mm -hmm. Because it's often not appropriate to just start out being like, what is this? You know, that's really rare. But sometimes it'll be, like, the thing that, like, actually gets me going. is like, oh, maybe I can't answer this question. And it's usually a very abstract question. Absolutely, yeah. I think, um, yeah, poetry or, like, writing in general as an answer to an abstractness. And I think, like, articulating it as a question is helpful because a lot of times I'm writing because I'm just like, I have something... F- like funny feeling in my chest right now and I need to like figure out what's point poking at it and I think that like articulation of feeling as question is really helpful and sometimes when I finish a poem I'm like I've got more questions for myself (laughs) (laughs) yes but then other times sometimes it feels really satisfying and you're like okay cool and that's when I think that's another thing in thinking about editing like when is a poem finished I think no writing is truly ever finished Mm -mm. because there's a million different ways to execute everything but when it can feel ready is when you feel like what it set out to do has been achieved. Yeah, and sometimes that can mean like finding the right question to ask out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it it doesn't always have to have a I don't know, a final line. Uh, yeah. In fact, some of the most powerful poems I've read and some of the one my favorite ones I've written have been ones that felt right to end almost awkwardly Mm -hmm. because it's like this is how I want someone to feel when they're done reading this yeah Yeah. I like that I really like a good ending line where you're like but wait what Mm -hmm. (laughs) like is there more is there a part two (laughs) yeah because then it doesn't feel finished and then it sticks in people's heads and Mm -hmm. some topics should you know there are some things that you just really want to have linger Mm mm-hmm I like the reader to feel as uncertain as I do at mm-hmm. <laughs> every point in my life. <laughs> yeah, which is pretty much all the time, so... <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like, <laughs> I don't really know if this is settled, please <laughs> yep. feel it with me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's one of the most important things that poetry can do is, like, very intentionally make someone feel something that you're feeling that they can't really describe either. Absolutely. Yeah. It's really cool, like, just that kind of like I don't know like ghost feeling when you've read something and you're like I don't know how to feel this in my own body but this person is like making me feel it mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it's good poetry is real good it's really important <laughs> yep poetry is good a message from yeah. two poets <laughs> yep. we like it <laughs> read more <laughs> <laughs> and just check out honestly like to the to the listeners like check out poets that are nobody like someone publishes their first book just it's usually like 
five bucks, just buy it and try it. Because some of the best poems I've ever read have been from people, random people on Twitter. I think absolutely, like, when a new issue of a lit journal is out or, like, I think online journals are amazing because, like, you know, you don't have to buy anything. Um, But, like, if you see a name you recognize, go read it, absolutely. But make sure you read, like, at least one other person you don't recognize in that list. And I think I have this problem where I'm just kind of, like, drawn to the familiar and there'll be a new issue of X and I'll be like, okay, dope, I'm just going to read the people I recognize because I'm excited for their new work. But it's, like, when I've taken that, like, I don't know, chance but it's not a chance because it's like five minutes of your time always um they're just people that I'm like oh wait you're amazing I need your work constantly in my life but yeah I think just like letting yourself always try to expand like be constantly expanding the people you're following will only be good for you Mm -hmm. I agree with that is there anything else that you want to touch on before we wrap up um no I think that's I think I'm good. I, I'm thankful that you let me um, talk about my thesis for a little bit because I got to start writing that. <laughs> oh, no, that sounds really exciting. I'm glad you brought it up. I want to read it. Yeah, I'm <laughs> super excited. Um, I'm also going to be, like, putting, like, poetry in it, like, my personal poetry. I'm, like, really thankful that I have a really cool thesis instructor, and she's like, yeah, because I was going to make a chapbook originally just to, like, compliment the thesis, but she's like, no, you should just put your poems straight in. I'm like, all right, cool. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. That's so good. All right. Well, um, do you have anything to plug or where can people find you or your work? Um, so please follow me on Twitter at Summabis, S-U-M-M-A-B-I-S, and on Instagram at Borders Bookstore, <laughs> <laughs> which is the best Instagram handle. I'm so thankful I have it. That's so good. Um, I have some work forthcoming this year from Flypaper Mag, Mizna, and uh, Maps for Teeth. So be on the lookout for that. I will tweet about it excessively. Um, I'm really excited for Mizna. It's in the Palestine issue, and it's like dream journal. I'm just super excited. So be on the lookout for those things. I think Mizna's going to be soon. Yeah. Very exciting. Okay, well, you can find me on Twitter as well, at Dirty Pinko, or you can find me at Comic Wisdom as well. If you have suggestions, comments, or more importantly, flattery praise, you can email me at dirtypinkokami at gmail.com. And you can also get my uh, latest poetry book, Tears Shed with Purpose, on Amazon. Uh, Thanks for coming on the show, Summer. You want to say goodbye? Yeah, thank you for having me, and thanks for listening. All right. Have a good one. We'll see you all next week.